Amen. You can be seated, and we'll dismiss our school-aged kids to uh, the back as they head to their classes. While they're doing that, I would invite you to open uh, your Bibles up to Acts chapter 6 and 7, where we'll be today as we've been walking through the, uh, the book of Acts for a little more than a month. Before we uh, dive in, let me make a, uh, just a, a quick announcement that uh, Disciple Now, uh, we're going to have our first ever Disciple Now. If you're not sure what that is, uh, that's a weekend event for teenagers, um, and that's just a few uh, weeks away. What day is that? April 20th. That's what I was thinking. April 20th, that weekend, Friday and Saturday. And uh, Brad Crenshaw, he's in the back. He leads our youth group along with some just phenomenal uh, volunteers and teachers, and uh, anyway, I, I, uh, we need a lot of volunteers for this. We need host homes. The teenagers will spend the night in host homes. We need people to drive. We need people to cook food uh, or serve food. We need small group leaders. Um, I'm excited we're doing this. I was a youth pastor for uh, nearly 15 years uh, before we planted this church, and uh, youth camp in the summer and uh, Disciple Now were the two weekends that I saw God just do incredible things in the lives of teenagers. Something about getting them out of their normal environment and away from their uh, cell phones and just a group of people, a church praying for these teenagers that God would capture their hearts when so many things are going after them. Um, I saw God do just so many incredible things through a Disciple Now weekend. And uh, ours is coming up uh, in just a few weeks. So um, if you would like to help out in that in any way, um, if you would just write that on your card and put it in the basket at the end of the service. Um, maybe you can't do the whole weekend. You can just help for Friday or just for Saturday or anything. You'll be willing to cook or host homes or whatever. If you'll just mark that on your card or if you'll say, hey, I'll do anything, um, just write that too. We'll follow up with you um, this week um, about that. Got uh, some busy things coming up. And uh, these are all really good things. You know, as a church, we really protect our calendar. We don't put uh, very any frivolous things on there. We're pretty... Um, careful what we put on there, and with uh, Family Summits, um, with uh, Disciple Now, with the ladies' uh, retreat, uh, first weekend in May, I just feel like so many things are coming up that are going to be so good and rich for our families, um, and I am so excited about uh, those things as they're coming. Let me say a quick prayer for us as we dive into uh, God's Word. God, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that uh, as you say of, of your word, that it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit, that it would do that work in our hearts and our minds uh, even today, even this morning as we sit here in a supernatural way, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the truth of this word to us? Not that we would just hear it and be entertained, but that we would apply it, that it would expose sin in our heart and life, that it would encourage us where we're weak and we're weary, that it would do the work of um, imaging you to us so that we could be like you. Thank you for this example of Stephen that we're going to look at that just um, full of grace and truth. Lord, I pray that your word would uh, be planted in fertile soil this morning, that it would make a difference in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As we get to um, the book of, uh, if we get to chapter 6 in the book of Acts, if you missed last week, there were 12 of you here. Um, thank you for showing up. Time change, uh, it was raining cats and dogs, and spring break started. So, um, and we also, we studied uh, Ananias and Sapphira, so that was a task that I'm glad that's over. But one thing we saw last week is that the early church was not perfect, I think a lot of times we uh, I idealize the early church and we think, well, they did it this way. There's no way we could do that. That was something so unique. But then the author of uh, the book of Acts, Luke, just reveals to us that the church was not perfect, that it had some flaws, that it had some bad uh, leaders involved. And here we even see um, just, uh, just some more problems that come in, in the book. And, and I love this because it's a, it's a picture of the birth of the church, but it also challenges the church that, that we have to face some things and overcome some things and solve some, some things together. So that's what we get. Let's start in uh, Acts chapter uh, 6 and verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those were uh, the, uh, the Greek culture of the Jewish people, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, those are the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas. We were going to read this as scripture reading uh, this morning. That would have been interesting. And Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We see here um, the introduction of, uh, of Stephen. But more than that, we see that the church is the incarnation of the person and work of Jesus. This is what we're seeing. These people are taking on, just as Jesus taught, you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and he's teaching these things and these ideas and this, uh, this, this change in how we view life with Jesus at the center and we're living for the kingdom of God. We see that actually being lived out in this early church. And we see these people carrying the message and mercy of Jesus into a society that was very hostile against it. I use this illustration that our covenant partner gathering, but the other day we were, uh, we were riding down the road and uh, Hudson was with me, just me and Hudson, and Hudson has this made-up language for things, and he's like sticks to it. He like knows this language. He came home uh, yesterday, and I haven't seen him in a couple of days with all these new words that are part of his language and Ashley looked at me and said, is our kid weird? Does other kids like make up their own languages? Anyway, so we're, we're driving down the road the other day and uh, he's making up all these names for these places or he, he knows what they are already. And I asked, we passed by a church and I said, well, what's, what, what do you call the church? And he said, oh, dad, that's easy. That's where people go to see what God looks like. And I was like, well, man, that's got some real truth to it, um, in a sense, because as you see the New Testament, it's not the church building that people go to see what God looks like. It's the actual believers. And as we do life together, that the community around us gets a picture of what God should look like as we um, live out the truths of the gospel. 
And this is what we're seeing here, that when the, uh, in, in verse 1, in these days, the disciples were increasing in numbers. So what we've seen since the birth of the church is just this, like, growth pattern, that it's, you know, thousands at a time, and then daily they're added to in the streets, and we're seeing the church grow and grow and grow. Notice here, it also says the word disciples here, that this is not some flippant belief system or adherence to a certain doctrine. These were disciples of the way. That's what they call Jesus. Or in chapter 5, Peter uh, used this, this term, the life. These are followers of, in quotations, the life, based on Jesus' teaching that he was the way, the truth, and the life. So they were living out the teachings of Jesus in a real and radical way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, as they had prayed at Pentecost for the Holy Spirit to come, and he did come, and he filled them with power, and we see people like Peter being completely changed, and he stands up and gives this 10-minute sermon, and all these people um, are saved and transformed. But here Luke gives us another little insight into the church. It says that a complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this radical growth was causing some very practical issues. And some people were being neglected and being cared for. And there's also this uh, racism aspect to this too because they were different. These were uh, Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews that because of the diaspora were, were raised in a Greek culture. So they, they looked a little different and they celebrated things a little differently. And so there's this, there's this divide. The text says that a complaint arose. And that word complaint is pretty interesting. And it, it implies that there was this general murmuring and backbiting going on in these smaller groups all across Jerusalem. And it finally reached this boiling point where they say, hey, listen, I don't think you're caring about us. And so they take that word to the apostles. Now, here's just a pastoral note here. This is a really significant threat to our church. Nothing is used by Satan more effectively than distrust and resentment in the church. This is Satan's third major attack on the church since its birth a few chapters ago in the book of Acts. In Acts 4, he attacked through a persecuting government. In Acts 5, he attacked through the embezzling hypocrisy of one of its leaders, Ananias. In Acts 6, he's attacking through a spirit of grumbling and distrust, this backbiting. And if you've been in church very long, you know that this exists. Especially in the churches that I grew, grew up, these smaller country churches that, you know, there were, there were battles for power and prominence. And normally if you, wanted to, um, if you wanted to claim some kind of moral high ground, you'd begin to grumble and complain against the others that were in leadership. And this might be the most serious threat that endangers the church today, a spirit of grumbling It kills more churches than persecution. And this application for us, do you understand that when you speak evil of your brothers and sisters, especially when you judge their motives, that you are being used by Satan himself in that moment? Here are a few good rules for us as Christ followers to live by, that we should always give people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when we can. You know, when you're late to work, your excuse is, man, it's just been one of those mornings. But when someone else is late to work, you're like, man, they're a lazy bum. You give yourself the benefit, right? It's just one of those mornings. The other person that's late, man, you know, it's a character issue with them. They're just lazy and can't get, you see what I'm saying by giving people the benefit of the doubt about their motives when you can? When you have a problem, always go straight to the source. Isn't that what Jesus taught in Matthew 18? 
Do you know how much disharmony you would avoid if you operated that way? Either just let it go or go directly to the person. That's why Jesus instructs us to live in such a way. So we see the problem come up and then the solution that the 12 summoned all the disciples and we see the creation of of the deacon ministry. They had some kind of partner meeting and solved this thing. And we see that we're introduced to Stephen. Now this is important in the book of Acts and the journey we're taking because this is kind of the, the hinge and when everything changed. Up to this point, it was just the church in Jerusalem that was growing. Now, the commission was that, you know, they would go and be as witnesses in uh, Jerusalem and Judea and all, in Samaria and it just around the world, right? That it was this growing, right, dispersion of the church. But up to that point, they didn't do that. They just kind of all grew right there around Jerusalem. And thousands and thousands, they say, you know, the, the church could have been 20,000 people at this time. And when Stephen is martyred, as we read in Scripture reading we see a significant change. But I want to talk a little bit about Stephen today. I think he, we want to learn a few lessons from Stephen that I think are immediately applicable to our own lives. First is that Stephen had a heart to serve others. He's introduced to us as a servant. His job was not glorious. He was waiting tables for widows. He was basically overseeing the food bank. We had seen in chapters before that a lot of the people had liquidated lands and property and they were sharing their resources so the people that couldn't provide for themselves would be provided by the church. And this was going well for some people. The Hebrews were well taken care of, but there were these widows that were of a different culture and maybe even spoke a different prominent language that were being neglected. So the church chose Stephen and this group of other people who were almost all Greek to solve this problem gave him this not-so-glorious job of waiting tables. He obviously, Stephen, if you read chapter 7, he gives one of the most eloquent sermons. Obviously, he was a uh, capable leader, he was a gifted theologian, and he was a good preacher. But he didn't say at this moment, well, I'm going to need something a little more in line with my gifts. I know you want me to go wait tables, uh, Stephen might say, but you know what? I've really been studying this thing. I feel like I've got this gift to teach Or I've got this gift to do this. I'm going to need a business card with something on it. No, you know what he just says? Listen, I'm here to put Jesus at the center and to serve. He says, and his mantra is the same as John the Baptist, that I must decrease and he must increase, speaking of Christ. He said, it's not about me. And if this is how I can serve the body of Christ, then I'm gladly going to step into that. This is the best attitude uh, to have on a launch team. You need these kind of people on your launch team that will just do a little bit of anything. And we've got some people like that in in this room. I don't know if Tyler Spears is in here. He was one of those. He's been in every position in our church. He's been an AV. uh, He's he's been a community group leader. uh, He's served in, he's done a little bit of everything. And about every six months, you know, like a good uh, general manager for a baseball team, we give him the sign and we say, you know what? We need you to go do something else. And he gladly stepped up. And so many of you in here kind of have that heart that I'm willing to serve anywhere. This word used in verse 2 for serving tables is this Greek, Greek word, diakonia. It's where we get the word diaconate from or this, uh, what we call deacons. Generally, the term just means that if you see someone in our body who has a need, then you step up and you work to meet that need. That's what it means. See a need, meet a need. 
to live out the very mercy of God in a fleshly way. That's what Stephen was doing, and that's what the church has been called to do. And that service, though seemingly insignificant, had a huge effect on the church. Not only did it help preserve the church unity, his service led ultimately to the conversion of some of the chief antagonists in that community, the priests. And this service that Stephen had would end up being a picture of Jesus to Saul, the church's chief prosecutor. And I think there's something here for us. Francis Schaeffer said, the love of the church is the church's most effective apologetic. When we really love each other, not having to be in the spotlight, not using excuses like this is not up, up to you know, my gifts, this is, not, this is not really what I want to do. And when we kind of lay all of that inside and say, you know, whatever it takes for the ministry of the gospel to go forward, that I'm willing to do that. It's such a great and effective apologetic to our watching world. And our desire at Covenant is to be a place characterized by our love for each other and our desire to serve each other. To outdo one another in honor, as Romans talks about. When we started the church, we used these three pictures of a, a family and a team and a rescue ship. You've been here long enough, you've heard this a lot, maybe too much, but we wanted to be a family that really cares for the needs of others. You know, the needs, it sometimes seems silly, but to them, it's a big deal. We had one of those nights last night where we couldn't get our kids to go to bed. Have you ever, you ever had those, like, you're just... You're willing to do anything just to get your kids to stay in bed. You're thinking about deadbolting their doors shut. I know it would be a bad parent, but it would give me some, um, some more sane thoughts at the moment. But they, Hudson kept coming in, and he wanted this and that. You know, it's a little hassle, and he doesn't really need it. But you're willing to meet those needs. It's what it means to be a family. Whenever your family really has a legitimate need, you just work to meet that need, even sometimes at great cost to yourself, that we want to be a team, that we work together to further the mission of God, that we wanted not to have people who sat the bench and people who started, but that we would all be in this together, all using our spiritual gifts and talents and abilities to further this thing down the road. And then finally, we wanted to be a rescue ship. In our society today, it's easy for people to think that church is about them and their wants and their needs. And people pick churches based on music styles and, you know, where we meet. I can't tell you how many people I've invited to our church and I told them we met in a gym and they were like, ooh, I don't, I don't think I could do worship in a gym. And that's okay for them. If they only knew the places we'd been, this is the nice place, right, that we're actually here. If they only saw Cohab, they would like run. But this is not about us. This is not about your preferences. This is really is not even about, you know, what, what ultimately that, that, you, that you desire out of this. This is not about us. This is about the mission of God that we've been called into and the name and fame and renown of Jesus and pushing that forward in this collective effort together. We had this mantra in the early days that we need you to serve where you're needed and then where you're gifted. Well, waiting tables probably felt below Stephen a little bit, but he did it because it needed to be done. I can assure you that washing feet wasn't the specialty of Jesus. He didn't take some spiritual gift assessment and find that washing feet was like his, his gift. He didn't do it because he had this unique skill in foot washing or he had this special passion for foot washing. Jesus never washed feet and then walked away and said, man, I am more alive when I'm washing feet than any other time in my life. He never did. Surely he never did that. He washed other people's feet because he wanted to serve them. 
That was his heart. He even told the disciples, as you've seen me serve, that I want you to go and serve in the same way. Church, you should make room in your life, particularly in the church, to do things that you aren't necessarily thrilled to do so that you maintain the role of servant. So you don't get proud and puffed up about your special gift that you have. I read one time a prominent pastor, John Piper, who pastored pastored Hughes Church, well-known author, that during the week that he washed himself, hand-scrubbed the toilets in his church just so that he could be reminded of his role as a servant. I love that, and that's such a beautiful picture of what it means to serve others. And we've got people in the church the same way. We've got people with doctor's degrees serving in our kids' ministry and getting here early to set up chairs and staying late to tear down things. I love that because that's us being the church. This is not us leading with our resume. This is us saying, listen, we're here to serve. And whatever needs to be served or dealt with, and and this is not just talking about in the body. This is talking about in the world, that you've been uniquely wired and gifted to go meet needs that the world has, that, that you're working to kind of reweave the fabric of society that has been degraded and destroyed by sin, that you're using what God has given you, this ability and this willingness to go and do that. But even more than that, it's not just about the ability to serve. The Holy Spirit has given you supernatural power to serve in unique ways. The scripture calls these spiritual gifts. In verse 5, we see that Stephen was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Maybe your translation uh, translate that first word, grace. It's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 12 to talk about spiritual gifts. It's this Greek word, charis. It just means grace gifts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, makes it very clear to us that every believer has a gift of grace or a spiritual gift that is to be used to serve the church body and to serve the watching world, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. And I want to take just a minute to talk about spiritual gifts with us because it's easy as we look at a passage like this, we see the, the, the formalization of this like deacon body. It's easy for us to say, well, well the deacons will take care of it. I've used this example before. There's people that call the church in all the time and says, hey, there's this need in my neighborhood or there's this need in, in, my, in my network and, and, and I need someone from the church to go and meet that need. And we respond very lovingly, you are the someone from the church. You're the person. You see the need. You're connected to it. Now go meet the need. Not relegating this to someone else. Now we would love to help and we would love to partner with you through that. But there's just been this idea in most churches that I've been a part of that says only certain people are ready to take care of those needs. But God has gifted each of us with a spiritual gift. At least five places in the New Testament, it talks about spiritual giftedness. A quick definition, if you want one, is a divine enablement or spiritual entrustment or divine talent that helps move forward the purposes of God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, To each one is given a spiritual gift for the common good. I've met people that said, Well, I don't think I have a spiritual gift. And I would say, Listen, you just got to read the scripture. If you're part of God's family, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, He brings these natural, these supernatural giftings into your life. Well, what are those spiritual gifts? Well, the Bible lists at least 20. 
But most scholars don't think that that's an exhaustive list, that there's more. These are just some examples of things like leadership and hospitality and teaching and shepherding and encouragement and wisdom and knowledge and evangelism and so on. My question for you as we bring up this idea of serving one another is asking you, are you do you know what your spiritual gift is and are you using it to benefit the body and the world around you? What is your spiritual gift and how are you using it? This is the very core of what it means to be a Christian is to serve others. My prayer for our church is that we have 100% involvement in people using their spiritual gifts to serve the body. Now listen, this is a little messy at first because you're trying to figure out what it is and you can go online and there's a thousand, there's a million spiritual gift assessments you could take and you could take them, I encourage you to, but mostly the people around you are going to kind of be able to help like identify if that's really it. I've seen some people make some really stupid decisions based on these spiritual gifts tests. I had a lady at our church one time who took one of these things and she was a principal out of school and found out that administration was not her spiritual gift. And so she quit her job and went to do something else, which she failed terribly at. And, I, you know, don't, don't bank everything on the assessment is what I'm saying. But God does give you spiritual gifts, many gifts sometimes. I would love to see our church completely 100% involved in using the gifts that God has given you to further the kingdom. Stephen was first just a lead servant. He was there to serve. And second, we see that he was devoted to the word of God. He stepped up so the apostles could continue preaching the word. They even said in the text, listen, it's not right for us to stop preaching that God has clearly given us the, the job to do to preach in order to serve tables. They weren't being mean. They were just living out their calling. For apostles to have filled up their schedules, even with something good like taking care of the widows, would have been a disservice to the church ultimately because one of the church's greatest needs is the word of God. Be like an ER doc who cleans the break room in the middle of an emergency surgery and says, you know what, I'll get to that when I get to it. I've got to clean the break room. Now, I'm not dismissing the need to care for practical needs in the community, not at all. There are some traditions that focus so much on the word of God it's all about preaching and teaching. Maybe you know some of those churches, but they neglect some of the real needs of the people. So they're over on one side of the pendulum swing that it's all about the word of God to the neglect of people. Other churches in our area focus so much on serving and meeting felt needs that they neglect the teaching of the word and its importance to us. Well, which way is right? Neither of those. We need both of these things. Both of these things are so important. The apostles, when it's brought to them, didn't say, you know what, forget about the widows and orphans. No, we need to be able to preach. So they didn't say that at all. They called a meeting together and said, listen, God has an answer to this problem. And so they began to discuss it, and that's where the deacons came from. They needed both. They needed the word of God to be preached. They needed to be first and foremost, but they also needed to care for people just like Jesus did. Jesus Brother James addresses this very thing in his letter in James chapter 1. Maybe you remember this. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows. We see that certainly in the text, in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the right teaching. That's the word of God that navigates our way. It's like a lamp unto our feet. The balance of these things is so critical. We need them both. 
You show me a church who emphasizes the preaching of the word but doesn't care for the needs around them, and I'll show you one that's divorced from the heart of God. Conversely, you show me a church that cares so much for the needs of others but doesn't have, right, this this true uh, way to follow, this lamp of God illuminating our path, and I'll show you one that ends up like the church at Ephesus. Tim Keller says it this way, love... This is the meeting felt needs without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. However, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. The world needs both. In chapter 7, we're not going to get into that today much, but Stephen stands up and gives the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And it's eloquent. I mean, he did something that was so, he was being blamed for being blasphemous against the temple and against Moses. And he starts at the beginning and just weaves this narrative of Christ from the very beginning up to now in this beautiful way. I encourage you to read it this week. How did Stephen learn to do that? Where did he get all that knowledge about the word of God and application of who Jesus was? Well, he got it from hearing the apostles teach it and from the Holy Spirit illuminating it in his life. Stephen prioritized the word of God by freeing the apostles up to teach it, but he also prioritized it by learning it for himself. And here's my question for you, my question for us. Have you devoted yourself to the word of God? Would you be ready to preach that kind of sermon when called upon? It's not enough for me to prioritize teaching it. You have to prioritize learning it. Just like Stephen, you're going to be called upon to give an answer in places where I'm not going to be present or the other pastors here aren't going to be present. You're going to be the pastor in the area. You're going to be the greatest theologian that they know, and you're going to be called upon to give an answer. I pray that we know it. I pray that we learn to fight with Scripture, that we, we memorize it, and we meditate on it, and we, we, we muse ourselves around it, that it becomes the anchor for our soul when the attacks of the enemy come and anxiety rises up, that we're able to fight those doubts with Scripture that we've memorized. David says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By hiding God's Word in our hearts. Church, do we have that kind of devotion? As our world gets more and more post-Christian, we are going to need the word of God like a lifeline like as we never have before. I pray that we would be faithful enough to have our mind and heart ready, filled with scripture when the time comes. Third thing we see in Stephen is that God does his greatest works through ordinary people. Again, Stephen preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts with the most powerful effect of these priests coming to join the faith and ultimately the conversion of Saul himself. Why? Why is the Holy Spirit trying to show us through this that ordinary people filled with the Spirit can do anything the apostles can do? There is no relegating this to the professionals We are the professionals as we walk with Jesus. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus actually told his disciples that it would be better if he went away because only then could the Spirit come. Jesus said that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in ordinary believers, inside ordinary believers, would be greater than the very presence of Jesus beside us. And you see that in Stephen. 
that we've made a mistake. How we've built all churches kind of turned this on its head that we've built them as a group of people who come and admire one leader or one teacher. And I think that might be keeping the church from tapping into the real potential of the church as we are sent out as ambassadors or people who are sent out with a ministry of reconciliation. That is what God is calling us to do. One of the greatest miracles It's supposed to happen through people like you, just like they did Stephen. And the souls of our community, the major antagonist of the Christian faith, won't be converted by coming to hear me or Jason or Weston preach. It'll most likely be converted by someone who is living out the gospel in front of it and ready to declare its truth to them in a very personal way. This is what we've been talking about for a year and a half, this idea of sentness. What is God leading you to do? A few weeks ago, I used this illustration. Just recap it quickly. For those of you who weren't here, I used this illustration of going up the mountain to hear God. In the Old Testament, only Moses was invited up the mountain to be in God's presence and to hear from him. And he took the Ten Commandments, the Word of God, back down to the people. In the rest of the Old Testament, it was only the high priest or the priest selected for the specific duty that would actually go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He would, he would go on behalf of all the people. He would be the only one that was accepted, the only one that was invited in to go in, into the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, right, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies with the rest of the temple was torn in two. And that was basically a way of Jesus saying, listen, we, we all have access to God. Go up the mountain and listen to God and hear what he says and then leave in this bold, courageous faith to do what he's asking you to do. What is God asking you to do? God does his greatest work through ordinary people. We've had this problem on the mission field for a long time. I've talked to some of the leaders of the IMB, International Mission Board, oversees some 17,000 missionaries at some points. And there's this problem that people have, these missionaries, that they refer to as mission creep, that the missionaries forget why they're there. They don't have to raise money because the churches we all give to a program that helps fund them. And this is not everyone, but it's some of them that they forget why they're there. And they go do life as a normal person. They become part of that culture, but they forget that the driving force that's brought them there is that they would be an agent of reconciliation. They'd be a proclaimer of the good news. And I think that is so true with us that most of us are gonna go to work tomorrow and we're gonna do a good job and we should do the best job because we don't work as unto our boss. We work as unto the Lord. We don't even answer to necessarily our boss on one level. We answer to God. Even if our boss is a jerk, we should go in and we should do the best job possible. But ultimately, we're not there just to do a good job. We're there, right, to to bring with us the mercy and the message of Jesus that all around us would see this. We're there as missionaries to be the proclaimers of the good news of Jesus, And most of us, if we can be honest, are going to go to work tomorrow, and that's not even going to be a thought in our minds. We're going to go to work, and we're going to go through the routine, and we're going to do the thing without ever remembering why we've been sent there in the first place. 
God does his greatest work through ordinary people. Here's the last thing. There's probably 10 more things. This is the last thing we have time for today. Sometimes God's will for us is suffering. Now, I know you don't want to hear that. I know I don't want to hear that. I'm a guy who hates pain and discomfort probably more than anyone else. Ask my wife. If I have a headache, I will complain about it nonstop for days. But sometimes God's will for us is suffering. We see this in the life of Stephen, that Stephen did everything right, full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, willing to serve tables, willing to take, you know, a a, a job off the stage, to step out of the limelight. He was full of God's word and dedicated his life to it. He was willing to stand up and proclaim the gospel, all these things. And he ended up dead. What happened? Why didn't God bless him and reward him and grow his ministry and multiply his days? I, I, I don't know. But you know one of the things it says in verse 58 that these people stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was watching and as every stone smashed into Stephen's face and his body was mangled into a bloody heap, Saul heard Stephen's pleas with God to forgive his persecutors. He saw the glory of God, it says in Scripture, reflected on Stephen's faith. And something happened in Saul's heart. We're going to see in a couple chapters as he's converted that he never got over. This is also a real turning point in the book of Acts. Up to this point, everything was happening in and around Jerusalem, this one city. But God's heart was for the nations, the very ends of the earth. Persecution really ramps up and the church spreads. Stephen's most effective contribution to the kingdom of God wasn't through his service or his devotion to to the word of God. His most effective contribution came through his martyrdom. It was in the midst of pain that Stephen preached his loudest sermon. Do you understand that? That the sermons that you preach through your pain are louder than any sermon you'll ever preach through your blessing. Your faithfulness to God when you're in the valley will have a far greater impact than your claims about God when you're on top of the mountain. Many of you are being called right now to glorify him in the hour of your most difficult trial. For some of you, it's a physical or emotional affliction. For some of you, it's a situation that you never asked for. It's a Just a tough, weary season that you've been walking through. Maybe you can pray as Stephen did that, Jesus, I want to see you standing. And I trust you. Help me to give you glory in the midst of this difficulty. Some of you have been put into situations where it's really costly to obey. You work in a work environment that's very hostile to the things of God and God's placed you there as a witness to this truth. I'm not saying there's not wisdom that goes in there at the right place at the right time as you listen for the promptings of the Spirit. But you know if you're going to step up for the things of God that it's going to cost you greatly. You've been put into situations where it's very costly to obey. You've got to remind yourself in those moments that Jesus is worth it. Stephen's on trial. 
And he doesn't have to be fully honest. He doesn't have to share the whole truth. He can certainly, as a man as brilliant as him, can come up with some kind of way that's going to calm the agitators. And then, and then his life is spared. And he gets to go back and serve the widows again and lead this deacon ministry and be a part of the growth of the church. But that's not what he chose. He never chose the easy way. He just stepped up. I love that song we sing. Jesus is greater, make my heart believe. I love that refrain. Because if I'm honest with you, there are times when I don't really functionally believe that. I believe that comfort is greater. I believe that ease is greater. But we know that Jesus is greater. For others, God has called you to something sacrificial or uncomfortable, to serve in a ministry of the church, to start a ministry of your own, makes you uncomfortable, to make a difficult financial sacrifice, to go overseas on a mission trip, maybe move over there permanently, to help a group move in community groups, to start a new group. Maybe it's call, God's calling you and really placing a burden in your heart to join Weston in the Shreveport Church to go start a new church. Or maybe he's calling you to move to New Orleans and help Stephen start a church. Whatever it is. Maybe you would pray as Stephen did. Jesus, help them see you and me. God wins the world through people who say it's not about me. And Jesus is worth it. And they just pick up a towel and serve. Whatever the cost. Can you pray that? It's not about you. It's not about me. Paul says this in Thessalonians. I'm convinced that one died for all so that those of us who live should no longer live for themselves. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. We're going to take communion. Jason's going to come up in a few minutes and recognize uh, our deacons that are in here with us as we're talking about this. But I want to pray for you. If you could just, maybe you would just communicate with God from your seat there and you would just ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of his word and how it applies to you right now. As we see in Stephen, this desire to serve, this devotion to the word of God, this enablement by the Holy Spirit to do these incredible things, even through the most difficult circumstance that he was in. Maybe you would pray that God would use you in a similar way. Father, I I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray as your word says that we wouldn't merely just listen to it, that we would do what it says, that we would find immediate application, that it would lead us to repentance for our selfishness and pride, that it would encourage our weary heart for those that have been fighting this battle of obedience and serving in a difficult place, the, the weariness that has come with uh, those who are fostering and have adopted those have been put in really difficult families. Extended families of moms and dads who don't get the mission that that they're living out. They don't understand it. Father, that you would give them this extra measure of grace in their difficulty. 
so that they can make much of you as their life is squeezed. Lord, that there would be this aroma of life and truth that comes from them as life gets difficult. And Lord, that we would pray as the man did in scripture, that I I believe, but help my unbelief. In our moments and seasons of doubt and discouragement, Father, would your word become so real to us that we could literally wrap our arms around it? And that your presence with us would become so real to us, it would be more real than the furniture in the room, that we would know that you're with us and for us, and you're working in us to extend the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Father, do these things in us. We pray it's in Jesus' name, amen. Our communion servers are here. We're gonna take communion when you're ready. I'll give you plenty of time, but communion in scripture is reserved for those who are part of God's family. So if you've trusted Christ as your savior, and you're living a life of obedience to him, We invite you to come and partake. You don't have to be a member here. But before you come, would you pray and ask God what he's placing on your heart and just respond to him however he leads. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Come when you're ready.
stars they wept The morning sun was dead The Savior of the world was fallen His body on the cross His blood poured out for us The weight of every curse Yeah. 
Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the Christ is risen from 